Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lee. It's pretty easy to say that the relationship between sales and sales ops is an important one, right? We all get that. But how do you make that relationship actually work? That's where the value begins. More specifically, what does the partnership between sales leadership and sales ops look like when it comes to coaching within your organization? Now we're really starting to get somewhere that's going to be valuable. To help us dig into this relationship and all of its nuances, we chatted with our guest today, Kelly Chan. Kelly is currently the Director of Commercial Sales Strategy and Operations at Global Foundries. And previously, she spent five years in go-to-market strategy and analytics at Box. At the time of our recording, Kelly was leading sales strategy and operations at People AI, an AI-powered sales productivity platform. Kelly has this unique set of experiences that ranges from working at a massive organization like Box to being, as she puts it, a one-woman band at People AI. In our conversation, we dive into the metric categories she created to help coach reps. We talk about how she brings business context to the data and why everything we were taught about ratios and sales planning is wrong. To start, though, I wanted to get a sense for where Kelly's role at PeopleAI fit into the larger organization. She, like so many of us in operations, was a solo act. So I run basically sales strategy, sales operations. I'm a one-woman band, and my role primarily is I see myself as laying the tracks down for the sales team to ensure that they're heading in the right direction, they have what they need. And what that means tactically, I guess, as it relates to sales operations, it's forecasting, quota setting, territories, comp plans, deal desk, order management, all of that fun stuff. And I think, you know, my partnership with sales leadership is just making sure that they have everything they need to be successful. Got it. Perfect. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about that partnership and and what it means to actually be successful. I'm curious how you think about kind of the division between what it is you are responsible for and what you bring to the table in those conversations, both with leaders and with reps versus what a manager or a sales leader might bring to the table. Because you might kind of approach it with slightly different skill sets, I would imagine. Yeah. And I think people kind of generally think of sales operations as the person that they go to for reports, or if I have questions about comp plans and stuff like that, I think what people don't necessarily realize that we have all the connections to the business, right? To finance, to marketing, to product, um, to sales. And basically we're able to connect the dots between all of these areas. Historically, sales operations has been the cost saving team for it, for a company, right? They invested in sales operations. So the sales team doesn't necessarily have to carve their own territories, build their own comp plans, all of that stuff. And so that relationship, I feel like has evolved over time where, you know, as they get more acquainted with the data and trends that they're seeing, they can be that partner to sales and, you know, run programs, help them understand trends to build more pipeline, those types of things. And so I feel like that that relationship has evolved a little bit. And I think we still have a long way to go in terms of, I don't think companies have really figured out how to make the, this partnership successful. 
I really like Kelly's description of her role as laying the tracks down for the sales team to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. And she's right. Operations has gone through this evolution from a cost savings function to an investment in your company's growth and strategy. And that's where I really wanted to dig in with Kelly. As she mentioned, she's a one woman band on her team, as so many ops folks are. That one woman nature of the team creates constraints on the partnerships that she can have with sales leaders right off the bat. So how does she set expectations and maintain a strong relationship with her sales partners? Knowing that I have limitations in terms of time um, and just resources being a one-person show is that I have to learn how to scale and I have to be sure that I rely on the leadership to help me you know, do the things that I can't necessarily do. Like you said, meeting with either reps one-on-one or managers one-on-one. Um, and so you know, a lot of my time is working with leadership to kind of best help them coach their reps, uh, help them making sure that they have what they need uh, to be successful. So there's a lot of time and energy put into just making sure that they are using their time most efficiently, because not only do I not have the time, they also don't have the time group of six to seven uh, reps on each team. You know, that's that's a lot of one-on-ones on a regular basis, and it's time invested on that. And so we spend a lot of time talking about coaching with the manager and rep to relationship. And so uh, what does that actually mean? Every manager has their own flavor of coaching their reps. And so us as a company and people AI with, you know, the automated activity capture, we can see what good reps are doing and what struggling reps are doing and basically kind of outline what they should be doing on a regular basis. The thing I think that's most interesting about that, right, is what you said about the product, right? Where this is what you as a company do. And so I would imagine, you know, we at certainly at Drift, I feel whether it's a real pressure or not, I feel like we have to be the best at meeting our customers where they're at. We have to be the best at handoffs in the customer journey because it's what we preach and what's what we sell every single day. Do you have that kind of same feeling internally where it's like, okay, we're selling a product that's meant to help improve this relationship. And so we actually have to be the best at it internally as well. Yes. I don't think we have to be the best, the best, you know, I think we have to be realistic in terms of the sales leadership that is out there. So we have some sales leaders that tend to be a little bit more in the weeds with the data and like that kind of sort of thing. And you have some leaders that are like, hey, just give me the quick five minutes, you know, I, I overview of what, how my reps stand. And so I think what we have tried to do is try to make that data doesn't not feel like data, right? In the sense of what sales is used to is scorecards. And so we've put together what we call leading indicators that basically says, hey, we're not going to score you on whether or not you had enough pipeline, whether or not you hit your target at the end of the quarter, um, whether or not you're focusing on the right types of customers. We're going to score you on activity measures. We're going to score you on, hey, I'd like to group it into three categories. Did you hustle? Did you actually do it? Did you actually go to any meetings on a regular basis? This is just, you know, waking up and doing your job. Two is, are you generating pipeline? And not only just 
pipeline, but qualified pipeline. So we have a process to understand what qualified pipeline looks like. And then three is deal progression. Are you doing the right things to progress the qualified opportunity all the way to a closed one? And so there's activity associated with that. The hustle is just, hey, are you doing the right number of meetings on a weekly basis, right? And then the qualified pipeline is, okay, as we measure throughout the quarter, how much, how much of this qualified pipeline um, are you creating, you know, 10, 20 opportunities a quarter? And then, you know, deal progression is how many deals are going through the sales funnel? Like, is it getting stopped at best case or stage six or wherever it may be? And so what we found is that we're breaking down coaching into multiple levels, right? If you can't have a conversation with a rep about deal progression, if they're just not hustling and they're not doing the right things. And so it's cumulative in terms of we got to fix one problem before the other. Once we've kind of laid the structure down leadership, head of sales, e-staff members, as they're looking at the progress of their sales leaders, we all can talk the same language. We're not saying like, hey, I just talked to so-and-so and I don't feel like they're doing enough work or if I don't feel like they have deal progression, you know, coaching or something like that. We're all kind of speaking the same language here, which I think is is good from an operations perspective because I'm not running around trying to trying to coach everybody on how they should <laughs> how they should be coaching their reps. So with the constraints of only having one person in ops, Kelly has created a blueprint for the rest of her sales partners to follow when it comes to coaching. Instead of every manager delivering their own flavor of coaching, she's broken it down into three specific categories. One, hustle, which is basically activity. Two, generating qualified pipeline. And three, deal progression. Look, not every sales manager is going to want to use exactly every flavor of these metrics. But at least as a team, you're starting from the same place. And like Kelly said, you're moving towards this world of having a common language. I was particularly curious about that first bucket, hustle. In my experience, a raw count of sales activity like calls or emails is not always the most insightful indicator of quote unquote hustle. And reps don't particularly like it either, to be honest. So as Kelly and her colleagues thought about that hustle bucket, had they figured out what the right measure of hustle was? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. We've kind of looked at all types of hustle metrics. What I think really sticks is the number of email responses that they're getting. So we don't necessarily care about the number of emails that they sent or not care. There's not a lot of trends in terms of number of emails sent is actually going to make you a better rep. But what, when we measure email responses and say like, Hey, the, the conversion of email sent versus emails received is high, then your emails are effective. Or you can send a bunch of emails and get, still get the same number of received emails. So it really depends on the rep style, but that I think is, is a example of a good hustle metric. The other is just pure. How many meetings did you go on on a weekly basis? And. There are, you know, obviously some areas that you can dive into. What types of meetings uh, are they just meeting with customers or prospects? You know, there's quote unquote ways to game the system as they always are. But those are kind of good views and metrics that we've been seeing to look at hustle. And 
it's interesting to see reps kind of coach themselves through this process. So we've kind of embedded a lot of this uh, views into our QBRs. So once a quarter, they'll review and they will kind of reflect and say, hey, you know, I spent a lot of time on customer calls in the last quarter and, you know, I didn't develop my prospects and new business opportunities as well and fast as I should have or working on existing deals and I didn't focus on pipeline generation. And so those are the types of things that we're we're hoping to kind of drive within the sales organization instead of us thinking and hypothesizing whether or not these things are actually real. All the data is right there in front of us. And maybe the QBR is the setting that you do this in, but you mentioned that you're kind of giving them these three buckets in this framework as opposed to some sort of scorecard, right? And so I'm curious, how is it that they know what good looks like inside of each of those buckets? Is it some sort of sales math that you give them? Is it benchmarking against their peers? What's the replacement for that scorecard to say this is what good or not so good looks like in each one of these buckets? Yeah, we've kind of triangulated on targets. So each one of the metrics that I've mentioned, we have targets associated with that. And there's two kind of ways that or two inputs to that calculation. One is we kind of go a backwards math in terms of, okay, if you need to hit a quota of, you know, a million dollars, X number of deals, how many deals does that actually take? How many pipeline deals does that take? What's the conversion rate on that? And we basically keep going backwards until we get to the number of meetings that they should have per week. The other way is to look at existing reps and their historical performance. And what I mean is existing good reps that actually attain their number. And we can actually see what they've done, you know, on a regular basis. And so we've kind of triangulated those things together to come up with, here's the score. The beauty of our product is we can have multiple scores for multiple types of teams, right? It gets a little bit tricky as you go in from differentiate between enterprise customer or enterprise reps versus uh, commercial reps. They might have different metrics. They might have different scores, uh, whatever that may be. And so from an operations perspective, if I was doing this at a larger company, I don't have to worry about, okay, everybody has to stick to this cookie cutter metric and target system. We can, we can kind of customize and tailor it to, to the teams. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because I know before you were the, the one, one woman band that you are now, you were, you were at Box, which is obviously a much larger organization. And so I would right. imagine that the way you look at those targets is probably incredibly different for each segment of the business. And so were you able to kind of pick and choose which of those lessons you brought with you to, to your new role? Uh, yeah, what Box taught me, well, so Box didn't use people AI, at least when I was there. My frustration, I guess, and I didn't actually realize it was a frustration of mine until I kind of got it, got to people AI and realized that this is actually a pain in sales operations, whether we know it or not, is... I was going to, you know, board meetings or east staff and saying, "Hey, you know, we need more capacity or we need more pipeline or whatever it is." But all of my insights was based off of data of course as the foundation, but a lot of the commentary was very qualitative. It was, 
from the sales leadership team saying, hey, this is what we're feeling. Um, but no, none of it was actually backed by physical data in terms of when we talked about the reps activities. And what I mean specifically by that is like, you know, ramp time is a perfect example. What is actually happening during a rep's ramp? A lot of the times when I ask this question to sales leaders, they would say, hey, you know, don't worry about them. They're ramping, you know, come back in six to eight months once they're done ramping, and then we'll evaluate whether or not they're a fit. It sits quite difficult for our sales operations, given that we just invested a lot <laughs> of money in this rep uh, withdraws or, you know, sign on bonuses and et cetera, et cetera, you know, just sitting and waiting to see that. And so there were times where it was just frustrating, but my first initial thought was never to ask the reps to go input all of their activity information, right? Sure. To do all of this, even if I did, I would not get what I wanted to get. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? That's everyone's favorite thing to do. Um, so I, I can imagine them just cursing my name as I was, <laughs> as they were inputting these this information into Salesforce. Once I understood what PeopleAI was providing from a data perspective, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this can touch so many different facets of sales operations territory planning, quota setting, comp planning, all of that stuff. And it's it's so basic, right? That's what I think is is really fun and exciting about this. It was it was it's almost like finally everything in Salesforce makes sense. Mm. <laughs> you know, in terms of creating opportunities and all of that stuff. You know, once you layer in activity information, it's like, okay, now I actually have a holistic view of an opportunity. But obviously it could take hours and hours to get there manually. That's the fun and interesting part. All of a sudden, everything in Salesforce makes sense. What a dream that would be, wouldn't it? The more I talked with Kelly, the more I realized what she is doing and what tools like PeopleAI are doing. They're bringing context to data as opposed to bringing data to context. The data is the starting point, and then everyone works to understand it together based on that common language they've developed, as opposed to, like she mentioned in some of her previous experiences, anecdotes ruling the day. This is a very hard switch to flip, and sometimes you need data to contradict the narratives that can take hold in your organization. But one challenge to myself after this conversation is, can I bring context to data instead of bringing data to context? Kelly is clearly at the forefront of how we can continue to evolve the relationship between ops and go-to-market leaders. So I wanted to get her take on where we go from here. What's in our future? So I think the insights and trends are endless. I don't believe we've really cracked the nut on this. I've been just looking at the data and trends and thinking, oh my gosh, I need to change the way that I run sales operations. For example, when we do headcount planning, you know, we base all of our assumptions on ratios and say for every three AEs, you get one SE or, you know, one BDR for four AEs. And 
that's what I was taught when I first entered sales operations. That's what, that's always how it's been. But in reality, what if it was custom and tailored and what if to the specific reps or the specific segments based on historical activity? I mean, we can talk about the types of SCs. We can talk about the types of reps that they should be getting, or even down to the number of accounts that each rep should have. Like, why do we peanut butter spread that? And everybody has the equal amount of accounts. When we know some reps can't handle all accounts or some people need more accounts, you know, uh, those are the types of things that I feel like, you know, this sales operations will evolve. One of the things that we've started doing is starting to pay our BDRs on activities and the types of activities that they're doing. They used to do that via inputting that into Salesforce or spreadsheets. A lot of time goes into the verification of those and fighting over those. I truly believe that this will help us kind of like revisit a lot of the things that we've done in sales operations over the years, all with the intents and purposes of making the sales team more efficient and productive and effective which is in my, you know, what I strive to do as an operator. Some sales teams may not necessarily think that we do that today, right? They, they still think of us as, oh, you know, they're, they're the ones carving our territories and just, you know, putting us into boxes and stuff. But so I I really see us uh, as operators expanding on that relationship with sales. I want to come back to that last point you just made in a minute. But before I do that, the point you were making about Look, some of these ratios, some of these, you know, kind of norms that we have accepted for planning might be flawed, right? Mm-hmm. How does that actually end up working when you move from the planning to execution phase, right? Like in theory, what you're saying makes total sense to me. When it comes time to actually give one rep 20 accounts and one rep 40 accounts, that to me is where one from an ops perspective it can get pretty messy, right? To make sure your execution is clean. And two, there's probably also a perception problem within the team at that point of like, what that that person is getting more opportunity for me because I have better conversion rates. How does that make sense? Yeah. So I definitely don't think all of this has been worked out, but I will say (laughs) that you can provide it via data, right? If a rep says, hey, I need accounts, I need more territory, you can easily pull up their territory patch and say, hey, have you or have you not engaged with these all these accounts and to across multiple personas? Have you done every single thing that you can? What people forget about territory planning is that you are optimizing the amount of revenue per account for in or per territory. And so those are the tough decisions that companies need to make in terms of, hey, like, do we want to hear these qualitative inputs from the sales team about their territories? Or should we be doing what's right for the business based on the data that we have? I believe there is definitely people are sitting on both sides of this. That's where I feel territory planning can be more collaborative with sales and sales operations, right? You have two polar kind of viewpoints and they can come together and find what's best for the company. And so I think that's ultimately what it's coming down to. I think the extremes of one person having 10 and the other having 100, I think is probably not what I would suggest or recommend. <laughs> but I think <laughs> I think where where I see it being beneficial is is, you know, um, kind of putting sales operations back in, in 
a driver's seat of putting data or having data to kind of drive a lot of these decisions. I'm going to repeat Kelly's point because I think it bears repeating. Carving territories is about optimizing the amount of revenue per territory. You can't just look at the number of accounts in a territory or what we think fair looks like. You're trying to get the most yield possible per territory. I really admire how Kelly questions everything about what we've been taught about the right ratios or the way to peanut butter accounts. Everything inside of hypergrowth companies is evolving. So too must we. As our roles evolve, this partnership between ops and sales, I'm always curious where operators decide to insert themselves versus not within their organizations. I personally think about this all the time when it comes to enablement around actual sales skills or deal specific coaching. I know I'm not the strongest asset that a rep has at their disposal. And if I were, we'd be in big trouble as a company. So with someone like Kelly, whose company literally sold a product to help coach reps, were there places that she also avoided when it came to coaching? I have had to learn kind of time and place for a lot of these things. I do feel like with this amount of data, the sales team isn't looking at this as regularly as they should be. Sales operations is also probably not looking at this as regularly as they should be. So for the operations team to look at the data, form their opinions and have conversations. And I don't think it needs to be in like big public settings. It could be during just their one-on-ones with sales leaders and saying like, Hey, I've noticed that it takes four or five meetings to get to a qualified opportunity. Coaching suggestion is once you've hit six or seven discovery calls and you're not really getting anywhere, we should probably revisit that account at a later time. And so those types of things, I think, are just really beneficial. I think of this as like a basketball game. You have your coach on the sideline, you have your players. Your players are going to observe some stuff and their coaches are going to observe uh, some areas. And I feel like it is the coach's responsibility and the player's responsibility to have those discussion in, in a pretty candid environment. Both sides definitely have to be open to it. And I think that's why I'm saying this, this will evolve and take time because this is definitely not going to happen overnight. I believe that that's something that just more of that needs to happen, especially in the operations world. Before we go, at the end of each episode, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? I read the... Crazy Rich Asians trilogy, which I highly recommend, especially if you've seen the movie. It just gets better okay. from there. <laughs> I'll leave nice. it at that. All right. Perfect. <laughs> Favorite part about working in ops? Oh, do I have to just pick one? <laughs> <laughs> totally up to you. So my motivator, this is probably not a fast answer. Uh, my motivator is being able to solve difficult problems that others are not able to solve. And so what I love about working in operations is that, you know, the connection between the cross-functional teams and connection with sales allows me to expand on my goals and aspirations, which is just solving a lot of these difficult problems. 
flip side, least favorite part about working in operations? When there's inconsistencies in the data or for silly reasons. <laughs> yep, I'm with you there. Or <laughs> you can't find those hard answers that you were looking for before <laughs> exactly. in, your, in your previous answer. <laughs> right. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today. I'm going to name two people. One is uh, from my time at Success Factors, uh, Jane Kim. She is now the CRO at uh, Circle CI. She taught me the foundations of operations and taught me even just how to use Excel and stuff. So, and, and be the analytics person that I am today. Um, second person is Robert Moon from Box. He's my kind of male ally as I kind of grow in my career. Uh, he, he's the one that pushes me. Nice. We're going to we're gonna have to get both of them on the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Build trust with the sales leadership team. I think it's important that this being in operations, like I said, having all the cross-functional views and data at your fingertips, it's important to ensure that you have the trust with your sales leaders so that, uh, that they can affect change. Thanks so much to Kelly Chan for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you're subscribed so you get a new episode into your feed every other Friday. Also, if you took something away from today's episode, leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right, that's gonna do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.